This is a content warning for mentions of suicide, self-harm, mental illness, and sexual assault. If discussion of these issues is painful or difficult for you, this episode may be triggering. Light on the Hill. This is the first episode of the podcast brought to you by the Tufts Daily, Tufts University's independent student newspaper since 1980. I'm Liam Knox, former investigative editor. And I'm Hannah Kahn, former opinion editor. This podcast will come out a few times a semester and will delve into topics that illustrate structural problems within the university and how those problems manifest themselves in various common interactions that students and community members have with the institution. Tufts, like most private universities, is classified as a nonprofit, but operates almost entirely like a business, with students being both its customers and its products. This episode is about mental health leave and accommodations at Tufts and around the country. We will be looking into some of the problems with university mental health leave policies, why many students are hesitant to talk about their most serious struggles with mental illness to university counselors or administrators, and what aggrieved students, backed by disability rights advocates, are doing to assert their right to fair and non-discriminatory help. We talked to Tufts alum Olivia Carl about her traumatic experience here, and Tufts senior Chris Polino about their difficult year on mental health leave, little more than halfway through their freshman year. I also spoke with Maura Klugman, a senior attorney at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, about the problems with mental health leave nationally and what you should know about your rights as students if you are struggling. This issue resurfaced in the national media this year. Back in July, the legal organization Disability Rights Advocates and six students at Stanford issued a class action lawsuit against the university for, as they claim, violating the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Fair Housing Act in their policies and actions against individual students seeking help for their mental illness. And as recently as mid-November, a Yale alumna sued her alma mater for placing her on involuntary medical leave after she was hospitalized following a visit to the Mental Health and Counseling Center on campus to treat her depression. In the suit, she alleges that Yale and the Yale New Haven Hospital violated her rights by forcing her to take medical leave and removing her from campus without her consent. In a letter of appeal to Yale written in 2017, the student wrote, Please let me continue to learn how not to be afraid continue to grow and become an adult who is strong enough to make a better life for herself. Please let me return to Yale and continue to help myself. In both the Stanford and Yale cases, in addition to instances in the past few years at Princeton, UC Santa Barbara, and many more, students who express thoughts of suicide or self-harm have been forcibly hospitalized and then coerced or misleadingly persuaded into taking mental health leave. This usually comes with rigid readmission requirements and harsh conditions, such as the revocation of student housing, and can often be even more harmful to the student's mental health. But the lawsuits have the potential to set a precedent for universities whose mental health leave policies could be considered punitive or discriminatory. The basis of the Stanford lawsuit, which we have since been told by a staff attorney at DRA has been stalled for settlement reasons, is mostly that mental illness is a disability covered by the ADA, and it posits what mental health advocates have been saying for decades now that universities gesture toward recognizing mental health issues and offering support, 
but stop short of being able to deal with serious mental illness or thoughts of self-harm. There are many potential reasons for this. Fear of bad press around campus suicides, which have tarnished the reputation of schools like Cornell, is one of them, as well as concerns about legal liability for student safety. In addition, there is a structural imperative at universities like Tufts to treat these highly personal struggles and the need for accommodation bureaucratically and systematically, more like a corporate HR department than a community support system. As news coverage of this phenomenon and our interview with Klugman point out, there's no real legal precedent against universities with discriminatory mental health leave policies. In fact, most of the template for these policies comes from guidance issued on a case-by-case basis to specific schools by the Office for Civil Rights. Klugman will get into the reasons for this a bit later. But though the Stanford case appears to be heading to a settlement, if students could get a court mandate on changing these policies, it would solidify an important guarantee for students across the country. From Princeton University, where in 2012 a student was evicted from his dorm and barred from campus after attempting suicide and then seeking help from Princeton's mental health services, to the students named in the Stanford lawsuit, to students at Tufts, whose stories are less indicting of the school but still painful. Students with mental illness across the country are floundering under bureaucratic systems and university policies meant to ensure student safety, but which keep the students at a distance, don't meet their needs, and, at worst, exacerbate their problems greatly. Next, we're going to look at the official language in Tufts' mental health policy and how it compares to some of its peer institutions. Hi, I'm Stana Lutke. I'm a researcher for A Blight on the Hill. In order to present a broader picture of the issue, I looked into each of the NESCACs and their policies around medical leave both voluntary and involuntary, compared them to Tufts and each other. Every school in our conference has some sort of involuntary medical leave policy, whether or not they call it by that name. Wesleyan calls it mandatory leave. At Connecticut College, the chosen euphemism is college-initiated leave. They're all essentially the same thing, a leave with terms dictated by the university rather than the students, but they vary in transparency and tone. Take Bowdoin, for example. Their listed policy outlines not only voluntary and involuntary medical leave, but also procedural information about return from hospitalization, family notification, appeal procedure for involuntary medical leave, and readmission following medical leave. But even with this long and detailed policy, ambiguity is still an issue. In 2016, the Bowdoin Orient reported various accounts of students being pressured by the administration to take voluntary leave. If that sounds like a paradox to you, you're right, and that's exactly the problem. Bowdoin student Megan Rutana, class of 2019, who was hospitalized for mental health reasons, wanted to come back to school in the fall. She expressed frustration that even though her leave was recorded as voluntary, it did not feel that way throughout the process. Then we look at Tufts, which has a good deal of info on voluntary leave, but the involuntary section is very short and totally ambiguous. It's one paragraph, so we're going to read the last two-thirds of it. This decision will be based on an assessment of the student's ability to safely and productively engage in purposeful activities at Tufts and will consider the health and safety risks the student may present to themselves or other members of the community. This decision may also consider whether the student's actions have caused ongoing or significant community disruption, inhibiting the academic progress and safety of other students in the Tufts community. This definition, and I'm specifically looking at the phrase community disruption, leaves the door wide open for university discretion that might run counter to a student's needs without real justification. 
If vagueness was an issue at Bowdoin, where the policies are much more transparent, you can imagine the host of issues this leads to at Tufts. This ambiguity isn't just frustrating, it's scary. You can understand why a student would be wary of opening up to members of the administration if they aren't going to get much say in the process determining their future here. The other worrisome language in here is productively engage in purposeful activities. Based on what we know about the requirements for readmission, this can lead to the immense pressure to perform as an elite student, rather than ensure one's healthy, if maybe slow, reintegration into academics and college life at their own pace, which, as you can imagine, is no good for anxiety or a slew of other mental health problems. We'll hear more about that pressure from Chris in just a minute. That's all for me, Stana Lutke signing off. The question of autonomy came up a lot in our discussions about medical leave with students and advocates alike. Clearly, the lines between voluntary and involuntary leave are blurred by administrative pressures, which we will talk more about later. And for mental health specifically, this issue crops up again when students opt for personal leave instead of medical leaves. This way, the university has less of a say in your readmittance to the school. Your decision to be here is in your hands. There's a trade-off students make, however, when they take personal leave. In talking to students like Olivia Carl, we've seen that students sort of have to prove their mental illness or explain their trauma in order to have their needs met. So can you make your own decisions around mental health medical leave and still get the resources you need? It's not totally clear, but from the cases we've looked at, it seems like the answer is often no. Next up, I speak with Chris Paulino, a senior who took a year of mental health leave after being involuntarily hospitalized during their second semester. Chris is an American Studies major with a minor in Theater and Performance Studies. They played the lead in the recent production of Eurydice here, and they are the current news editor at the Tufts Observer. I'm here with Chris Paulino, a senior here. Uh, who is going to be talking about their experience with mental health leave. Chris, thanks so much for coming on of course. and sharing your story with us. Uh, first thing I want to ask is just how did you initially even get acquainted with the idea of, of mental health leave? Did you know it was um, something that you had to be aware of before it all started happening? Um, where does the, your story begin, I suppose? Yeah. Um, so, no, I didn't. I didn't really know about mental health leave um at all I think until it was until I was hospitalized and then at that point it became a conversation of whether or not I was going to take one um and what the best choice was for me I think I think actually knowing beforehand that it existed would have been really helpful because um I think the policy is that if you're talking with like a dean before the semester starts about the possibility of it you can get your money back but if you don't you can't uh, which is what happened to me. Wow. Um, yeah, I think essentially what happened was I've been struggling with mental health pretty much my whole life. Um, and I came into Tufts with like diagnoses and medications and I was in therapy already. Um, and sort of what happened was school was really hard. Uh, I was kind of struggling in a lot of my different personal relationships and uh, just one weekend, I was doing really, really poorly. Um, 
and when I went to see my therapist a couple days later I was actually feeling better but someone had talked to her about um, the fact that they were worried about me and so she had to sort of consult someone else and at that point it was decided that I needed to go to the hospital Um, and then once I was at the hospital I was there for about a week and at that point I just hadn't been keeping up with school I had already been behind in school Mm -hmm. um, so it just made the most sense to take the leave and like readjust and gather myself and then come back did you have any say in terms of the hospitalization not really um it was interesting because i think like a week or two beforehand i had said that i was worried and that i maybe needed to go to the hospital and then that kind of just wasn't i didn't um but then that day I had I was like trying to make it very clear that I felt better because I did I was doing way better I've been very suicidal but I I wasn't anymore um and I think between knowing that I had been doing poorly like two weeks earlier and then knowing that I had felt that way over the weekend um it was kind of just a liability Mm -hmm. so it made sense to send me off yeah would you have said the same thing um, I guess, like, w- would you have, would you now looking back on the experience feel, have felt comfortable going to a counselor at mm-hmm. CMHS here and talking about those feelings you were having, even if you, especially, I guess, if you weren't having them anymore? Yeah. Um, I think actually I would have been. I think what happened that day was that because someone else said that they were worried about me, it became a, a different issue than if I had come in and said, I was feeling really terrible this weekend and I'm doing much better now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had said that many times in therapy, and I have said that many times here since, because um, it's true a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I think if you're able to like show up to your appointment and say that you're feeling better, that means something different than when someone else says that they're concerned that you might do something. Can you talk about uh, making that decision, whether or not you felt it was entirely your decision, or you felt like you had all the information at your disposal? And if you are willing just to talk about, you know, who or what department you had to meet with to do it and a little bit about what the process was like. Yeah. Um, So I made the decision while I was still in the hospital. Um, I, over the course of the meeting that I had before I was sent to the hospital, um, my therapist had sort of mentioned it um, and said that that was something that I should think about while I was there. Um, I definitely did not know exactly what I was getting myself into. I made the decision to take the time off because um, I had been behind in my classes and my English professor had emailed me while I was still there and asked me if I was going to turn in a paper on time. And I was like, oh, I I can't go back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think think it was the right decision in the context of the hospitalization. I don't think I needed to take a medical leave if I hadn't been hospitalized. Right. Um, I think... To come back to school after that week and try to make up all that work and yeah. reintegrate myself into all my classes and like the Tufts community at large would have been really difficult um, and not conducive to feeling better at all. It, I think it's interesting that part of the reason for the hospitalization was because of like procedure, right? Because yeah. of you know, oh, because it was someone else who told them that they were worried about you and I guess the counselor had to sort of make a decision um, in line with whatever the university's policies are about safety 
the you hear horror stories a lot around mental health about I mean specifically about hospitalization because uh, it's one thing if a student expresses suicidal ideation in a counseling session and then it gets put on involuntary medical leave or has to go through long processes where they get reevaluated and um, a lot of the examples you hear about where a student is either hospitalized or checks himself into a hospital because they're concerned for themselves. Yeah. There was a student at Princeton a couple years ago that this happened to. And it's very much, basically it's out of your hands at that point. Uh, did you feel like it was out of your hands? I know you ended up making the decision, but did you feel like because of the hospitalization there were all these voices in your ear saying like, this is what's best for you now? Yeah. Um, how did I mean? How did that make you feel in terms of having autonomy over your time here, especially as a first year? Um, what did that do for your mental health going forward? Yeah. Um, when I decided to leave, I decided to leave with a thought that I most likely wasn't going to be able to come back. Um, I had enough of an understanding about how rigorous the process is to actually return to Tufts from a medical leave. Um, to know that, and enough knowledge about myself as a person to know that it just wasn't super likely that I was going to be able to get everything done between, um, like, having a job so I could prove that I was functional um, and other aspects of the return process. Um, And so ever since I came back, I think up until this year, I haven't been entirely honest with the people that I'm seeing on campus about my mental health. Um, When I would be doing really bad I'd cancel my appointments instead of going in and saying that I was doing really bad because when it's the week after you can say I was doing really bad and now I'm not and then you won't end up in the hospital um yeah this year I decided that I was going to be honest with everyone because um I just it wasn't there's no point in going to therapy or seeing a psychiatrist if you can't tell them what's really happening um yeah, and I'm, I'm not seeing a therapist on campus anymore because I have concerns about being yeah. hospitalized again. Um, yeah. It seems like for all the concern the university has about mental health, there are a lot of obstacles to students with not just stress issues, not issues that can be fixed on an individual level or accommodated by communicating with your dean, but like deeply serious, um, maybe ongoing like mental illness. And, I mean, just, like, in general, stuff even caused by the university that's more serious than academic-related stress, um, that they're pretty bad at dealing with it, and that there are a lot of structural obstacles to actually being able to handle that kind of thing well. But what's your experience? Yeah. I've done very poorly in a lot of classes because of my mental health and because I couldn't figure out a way to either communicate with the professor about what was going on or communicate with my dean about what was going on. Um, I think accommodations work well for some people and, like, some of the things that people are going through, but not so much for me. Um, I mean, like, the attendance policy at this school is wildly strict, like, and they just changed the studio art policy so that if you get more than two absences, you automatically get no credit for the course. Whoa. Um... Yeah. There are days that, like, I go to class because otherwise I I could fail it, but it's I'm not going to get anything out of being in the class in terms of, like, what I'm supposed to be learning. And even more than that, I'm destroying myself trying to, like, keep up and be there and 
seem functional um, when I could be like processing things or talking to people um, so that I mean that's really specific is the attendance policy and I think that's true for like a lot a lot of people on campus regardless of like people who have anxiety it's really hard for and people who have depression it's really hard it's just like because because it's, it's so specific and strict and um there's not much that can be done even when you do go through like the proper channels i i mean i gotta say i'm relating a lot to what you're saying um for the listeners uh, kind of a weird coincidence since this episode around mental health was planned um weeks ago but recently i've been getting accommodations for my own mental health um i have pretty severe anxiety i've been going through a lot of depressive fluctuations lately and my professors have been especially helpful going to the dean was helpful as well um but it did feel like um what's most expected of me is that i get to a place um, where I can be meeting the expectations of the university again. And if not, the best option might just be to take the semester and maybe the year off. Um, because the point is not to accommodate you so that you can get better. The point is to accommodate you so that you can once again be a successful, tough student. Right. Um, my professors have not necessarily all had that mindset. Um, but I found that I, I, I would much rather rely on individual people at this school that I trust rather than the school itself and its systems. So I don't know if that rings kind of true for you, and I don't want to conflate our experiences at all because I, I, they're very, very different. But um, dealing with uh, getting accommodations, dealing with CMHS for me, you know, hasn't been traumatic or anything like that but it hasn't been easy and it certainly I certainly don't feel like my mental health is the priority in these conversations yeah no I absolutely understand I think there are actually a lot of similarities in our experiences in that regard because there it can just be really detrimental to get the institution involved yeah Um, and once you do I don't want to be like you're like marked but like anything that happens moving forward you're gonna be a concern so last semester i was doing really poorly um i like was missing a lot of specifically my spanish classes um and because of my anxiety i I'd have a really hard time communicating with people about what i need and how i'm doing um mm-hmm. which i have gotten much better about since but my professor reached out to me and was like you gotta come talk to me because you're gonna fail this class if you keep not coming um and I went and spoke with her, and it was one of the most rewarding conversations I've yep. had. It's like, because people do care about us. People really do, but the, like, university, like, it, yeah. it can't. It's, like, a system. It's a business, and mm-hmm. it's, because it's a business, it's not going to care. I feel like community also kind of plays into this conversation, wherein, like, individuals yes but that can extend itself to like a network of support that's many individuals but yeah when the institution gets involved it doesn't feel like they're facilitating that network of support honestly it feels like they're covering their their own uh butts (laughs) because we are (laughs) on the chuffs daily's podcast um but uh it and that doesn't feel good either and I understand that's a structural problem that goes way beyond Tufts. Mm-hmm. 
that's my take on it. Do you want to talk about that and tell me if if that's something that makes sense to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a I have a lot of different thoughts. Um, so what what happened was when I left the hospital, I came back to Tufts to like officially start the medical leave process. You have to interview with a dean. The dean who I sh- would have interviewed with was on vacation, so I met with the disciplinary dean, which. I knew it was because she was on vacation, but it, I still was like, why do I have to talk to the disciplinary person? Like, yeah. I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, and he just, yeah, he just was, I think was like kind of figuring it out as he was telling it to me. Um, I was told that I needed to be gone for a full semester. And I think I misunderstood what that meant. Um, but I also think that I said like, I think I asked him if I'd be able to take summer classes, and he may have said yes to that, which it was during the spring, so that would not have been true. Yeah. Um, I thought I would be able to return in the fall. I thought perhaps the summer would count as like a semester, and so I could come back in the fall, um, but I couldn't. I came back in the, the following spring, um, and yeah, that it just I was misinformed. Um, threw everything off for my whole family really actually um because i went i went back home to new york um where i had no friends that's the other thing we talked we talked about community and friendship and like how that is something that can really carry you through and i simply had no one um i just had no one i didn't have any friends in new york um i was just kind of stumbling through on my own and it was really hard and the other thing is you're you're not allowed to come on campus um, once you're on leave. I also do want to hear more about what it is you had to do during your time back home in New York um, and what it is you had to make sure to get together to be readmitted to Tufts and if you even, if you considered at all just not reapplying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are a couple of things. You need to provide... Um, well, okay. Everything that I say could be wrong, so I'll preface it with okay. that. But if I recall correctly, um, you need a letter of recommendation um, from someone that says that you've been like an active member of the community. I think that's what the phrasing is. It's something like that. So first you have to send um, a letter of intent to return, um, and then once you send that, and then they tell you you're allowed to start the process you have to send them um that letter of recommendation you have to i think get a letter of recommendation from a mental health professional those are the two things that i remember the most because it meant that as soon as i got home i had to stress about like finding a job or finding something to do to prove that i was like functional um which was not helpful when the leave was so i could deal with my mental health yeah um yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um so that was just really stressful trying to get that all together it was also stressful because i sent in a letter of intent to return for the fall and then i got an email that was like hey uh you can't come back i don't know why you thought that was the case but it also meant that i had more time which i think i needed i was able to like complete the process during the summer and then i stopped working and i took like the fall time to actually deal with my mental health which is hilarious because it meant that like i was not in a place where i could have returned that summer um when i was like approved to return yeah (laughs) um 
but I was ready to come back in the spring, which is lucky. It feels like it feels like you just had to shoe in this requirement rather than that it was actually going to show you were ready to return. Right. But I, we were talking about just what your job entailed. What, was it just a period where you were still really stressed out and pushing off this processing that you were supposed to be doing, like in theory? Yes. Um, stop me if I go on too long. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, I could talk about this for the rest of my life. But yeah, I, um, I, I've always loved working with kids, so I, I started working for a um, startup that did like a combination of mentorship and cultural education for like black and Latino kids. Um, we worked at a middle school in Harlem and a high school in the Bronx. Um, and I loved those children with all of my heart. They, they really kept me going more than anything else, honestly, um, just being able to see them and take care of them in a lot of ways that I think they weren't being taken care of. So essentially the people that I was working with were questionable in their morals, in my personal opinion. Um, one of them was um, almost violently homophobic and transphobic, yeah. um, and would teach that to the children, which is what really bothered me. Yeah, it was hard for me because I cared very deeply about the work that we were doing. Um, I cared so much about the kids, and I knew that the intent of the program was not only like right but what I wanted to be doing with Mm -hmm. my life was like working with kids and teaching them about the histories of their people and helping them um in any way that I possibly could but then I was also dealing with like this coworker who made me extremely uncomfortable and when I tried to quit my boss just didn't let me and um and he asked me about like whether or not I had 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 any surgeries and how much they would cost and just huh. whether my insurance would cover it. And it was just like a hundred different extremely invasive questions. He asked me about my birth name. I wanted to leave so badly. And not only would he not let me, but I knew I needed the I needed the job and I needed to have someone say, like, this kid is working and doing a good job and showing up for things. Yeah. Um, but it was so hard to be constantly uncomfortable um, in my work environment that I needed to be in so that I could return to school from my mental health leave. Yeah. Um, Do you think it would have been better for your mental health if uh, instead of being sort of pressured into taking this medical leave, if you could do it again, um, if you could do it again and also didn't spend that week in the hospital, would you have preferred to have stayed at Tufts? Oh, absolutely. Unquestionably. Um, I think... Every day in the hospital, I knew that. I think every day on medical leave, I knew that. I think every day since coming back, I've known that. I was already feeling better. That That's what really gets me, is that, like, the day that I was sent to the hospital, I felt better. And I was, like, I was on the upswing. And I knew that. And I communicated that clearly to the people who I was talking to. And it just didn't matter enough. Um, if I had, yeah, if I had stayed, I would have... I was already coming out of it. I would have come out of it fine. I would have been able to keep taking my classes. Um, I probably wouldn't have done great in them, but I would have finished them. I would have finished the semester, would have graduated in May of 2018. The other thing about the time that I took off was that graduating a year after everyone that I came in with, not everyone, because a lot of us are super seniors, um, <laughs> but all of my friends who have been with me since day one are gone. Watching my closest community sort of disband and dissolve was really rough um and I spent a lot of time over this summer kind of coping with 
knowing that I, I wouldn't have that anymore. Chris, thank you so much for talking to us about this um, so openly. Yeah. Um, and I hope that if other students are listening to this, if any underclassmen are listening to this and are struggling with something like this, um, that they can take some solace in the fact that many others have dealt with it and have gotten through it um, as you have. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost if anybody there. wants to like talk to me about it or like mm-hmm. needs someone to talk to you, I'd message me on Facebook because I would happily have a conversation about this. Do it. Chris is a sweetheart. Chris, thanks again so much. Of course. Chris's story is just one example of what can happen when students' mental health needs get wrapped up in rigid university policies and procedures. It may not result in a forced hospitalization and may not even lead to a medical leave, but when students ask for accommodations or help from university counselors or administrators, the process can often feel cold, stressful, and even punitive. Disability rights advocates say that you have certain rights in these types of scenarios that you should be aware of before agreeing to whatever the university decides might be best for you. I spoke with Maura Klugman, a senior attorney at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, to learn more about what these rights are and why university policies so often ignore them. I'm here with Maura Klugman, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the issue of mental health leave and of uh, the rights of students around mental health issues in general across the country. Maura, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely. If you could tell me, I guess, uh, how long the Bazelon Center has been around then, as well as um, what it is you guys do for students, uh, and whether it's uh, advocating for them and trying to educate about rights, um, uh, just sort of uh, give a brief idea of, of what it is that you do at the Bazelon Center. Absolutely. So the Bazelon Center has been around since 1972, um, and the Bazelon Center advocates for the civil rights, the full inclusion, and the equality of adults and children with mental health disabilities. Bazelon's been really important in expanding the civil rights movement to include fighting discrimination against and the segregation of people with mental health disabilities. And so today we do that using both litigation and public policy advocacy, uh, media outreach, technical assistance, basically whatever we can do to ensure that we have the greatest impact. Um, In the area of campus mental health work, we believe that colleges and universities should be committed to the success of all of their students and should encourage students to seek counseling when they feel depressed or overwhelmed or otherwise have mental health needs. Um, But what we found is that schools often respond to students with mental health needs in ways that violate the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which I usually just call Section 504. Um, Under both the ADA and Section 504, uh, which pretty much track each other, colleges and universities cannot exclude students because of their mental health needs, except when the student cannot meet academic and behavioral standards, even with treatment and other help. Another, in addition, excuse me, um, it's important that schools provide students with disabilities the reasonable accommodations or the modifications to normal rules and procedures that they need that will enable students to continue and succeed in higher education. Um, the Bazelon Center itself offers several resources to help students with mental health disabilities on their college campuses. First, we've created Supporting Students, a model policy for colleges and universities. 
Uh, this is geared to uh, help supporting students' mental health needs and ensuring that schools' actions towards students are non-discriminatory. It was developed after consultation with mental health experts, higher education administrators, um, as well as counselors and students. Uh, and that's available on the Baslon Center's website at baslon.org. And we also offer a frequently asked questions guide and guide to campus mental health issues developed by community leaders also on our website. The last thing I wanted to mention uh, as far as the work that we do in this area is what we do for students who actually contact, contact us with uh, problems on their campuses and who would say that they're mm -hmm. having a problem as a result of discrimination due to a mental health disability. Uh, you know, we at the Bazon Center were only a few attorneys based in D.C., and we, weren't, we were finding that we really couldn't help as many people as we wanted to help. And so we developed a partnership with the law firm of Steptoe and Johnson LLP here in D.C., and through that partnership, we're able to provide legal counseling to students who contact us about the problems that we're facing at school and often help, uh, you know, keep them on campus or get them back in class or help get them reasonable accommodations and uh, are really being able to help more students than we previously were able to. And uh, we'll be linking to the FAQ sheet for sure under the podcast when it comes out. So uh, the first thing I wanted to ask is just a kind of uh, general question. Um uh, about what's behind some of these university policies around involuntary medical leave, as a lot of uh, uh, the policies refer to it, um, specifically used when students express thoughts of suicidal ideation or self-harm on campus. And I wanted to know what you can tell me about what is the, what's the legal rationale uh, or history of these kinds of policies. Sure. So what's important to know is that a school can only force a student to take involuntary leave if, one, the student cannot remain at the school or if the student cannot meet the school's academic standards, and, two, the risk cannot be managed with reasonable accommodations. And so what's important here is that a school needs to conduct an individualized assessment of a student before placing that student on voluntary leave. That assessment needs to be based on objective evidence, and it needs to consider whether reasonable accommodations can reduce what the school foresees as the risk of that student remaining on campus. Um, so for this reason, um, for instance, it's problematic if a college tries to force a student to take leave by simply citing safety concerns that are based on assumptions or stereotypes about mental illness. Instead, legally, they need to conduct the individualized assessment I mentioned um, based on that objective evidence and whether the risk can be managed with reasonable accommodations. Right. Just as a follow-up in your experience, are those accommodations often tried first before involuntary mental health leave is suggested or um, forced upon a student? Or do universities often sort of see the involuntary leave option as a, as a safe way out of uh, a sticky situation, so to speak? Um, as far as, as what I've seen, you know, it really runs the gamut. Certainly there are schools out there that um, work really closely with students and consider reasonable accommodations and really, you know, consider placing a student on involuntary leave as, as a last resort. Uh, by contrast, I've absolutely dealt with cases where, for instance, a student um, is hospitalized uh, and, you know, gets put on an involuntary hospitalization and then returns from that hospitalization to find that the school immediately wants to put him or her on involuntary leave and hasn't considered anything else about that student, including whether that student can now safely remain on campus or if reasonable accommodations could help that student. So it really does kind of run the gamut of what you see across the country. Can you explain to me, if you know, a little bit of the history behind these policies and, and what was sort of the catalyst for, for that? 
this is really interesting, and um, what's important to know here is that this isn't new. This isn't a new thing that universities or colleges are doing. About a month or so ago, I was leading a presentation about campus mental health issues for a group of advocates in Baltimore. And in reviewing certain case studies and ongoing problems that Bazelon has been seeing in its intakes from students, it became really clear that the issues we're seeing today surrounding involuntary mental health leave, problems getting reasonable accommodations, problems with students with mental health disabilities being disciplined aren't new at all. I started to hear from advocates in the room who have been practicing in the field for 30, 40 years that they've seen these problems before, and they were quick to tell me that there really hasn't been much improvement since the times that they were college students. Would you say that the need for her consultation, for help, for more education around these issues for students on college campuses, especially as mental health issues among college students continues to, uh, I mean, the rate of it continues to increase, um, would you say that the need sort of far outweighs uh, what uh, you're able to supply at the Bazelon Center or what resources do exist in this country for uh, college students struggling with uh, these issues? Absolutely, and I think that for a couple of reasons, you know, both because um, it's just the limited resources of, of uh, you know, legal advocates in particular who are out there, but perhaps just as important, um, and this is why I'm thrilled to hear you're going to link to our FAQ guide, what we often see um, are students who contact us or reach out for help when it's too late for us to really be able to do anything meaningful to help them. Um, you know, this is a situation, uh, you know, if you're on your college campus and you're struggling with a mental health uh, issue, knowing your rights in advance of, uh, something bad happening is really important because it allows you to self-advocate and allows you to put yourself in the best position um, to, you know, avoid consequences that uh, might be really problematic for you. Um, And this is for a couple of reasons. You know, one, the vast majority of students who contact us uh, who are having a problem on their campuses don't really want to, you know, sue their colleges. They aren't looking for damages. All they really want um, is to go back to class. Um, the, you know, the vast majority of students I talk to just want to get their degree. They want to live in the dorms with their friends. Um, you know, they want their lives to continue, you know, as they were. They want to keep playing on their sports teams, and they want to keep having all those sorts of normal supports in their lives that are so important to them. And that gives, a, you know, a lot of leverage, quite frankly, to a lot of colleges and universities um, because students really will try to do whatever they can to get the school to agree to let them come back. You know, actually litigating uh, can take many years, and a lot of students just don't want to do that or don't want to put their, you know, mental health disability at the center of a litigation and things like that. So students often just don't have the energy or ability to, um, you know, pursue a true lawsuit versus trying to negotiate with the college to just get back to class. And I think that can make it really difficult sometimes um, for students to get ultimately the relief that they'd really like. I think that a lot of the conditions that universities, I mean, like Tufts, but I imagine many others as well, put on students um, during their time off or in or into like attached to an involuntary or even voluntary mental health leave, um, it could be considered a kind of um, it, it, like capitalizing on that kind of relationship, right? Generally speaking, any school's involuntary leave or voluntary leave policies, and to your point, the conditions returning from leave should not be different for leave taken because of a mental health disability or leave taken for any other reason. So, uh, just for example, let's say a student takes a voluntary leave of absence to address a medical issue like an injury for a car accident. The conditions that are placed upon that student for going on leave and for returning from leave should be the same as the conditions for the student who takes leave because of a mental health disability. 
so this comes up often in the context of whether, as you just noted, a student can be on campus when they take voluntary leave. Um, and what what the law requires is that if a student could be on campus when they take voluntary leave for a non-mental health reason, the student who takes voluntary leave for a mental health reason should be able to be on campus as well. Um, I'll note, though, again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, that um, where, even where schools do set different conditions for a student returning from leave for a mental health disability, students, in my experience, often choose not to challenge that potential discrimination because they just want to go back to class. An example of this, um, I don't know if you've heard of these, are behavior contracts. Students are often asked to sign behavior contracts, especially when coming back from involuntary leave. Uh, but once, you know, this might be something saying, for instance, that, uh, you know, the student will, you know, abide by, let's say, in the non, uh, you know, mental health disability context, they want, if a student was on involuntary leave, a behavior contract might say, um, you know, I'm going to abide by all of the rules in the student handbook or whatever it might be that address the behavior for which they were on involuntary leave. Um, and the, for the student who's put on voluntary leave for a mental health disability, it's fine if, if the behavior contract then requires the student to do the same thing as the student who is on involuntary leave for a non-mental health disability, but it shouldn't put additional treatment-related restrictions on that student's return. Um, in other words, re-enrollment criteria should not be different for leave taken for mental health reasons versus other types of medical leave. But again, as I mentioned before, students often do uh, sign these behavior contracts just so they get to come back uh, to school, which is something that, um, you know, when I'm working with a student, I try to be really careful about because sometimes a student can agree to, uh, you know, many additional criteria or restrictions on their return that ultimately set them up uh, to fail. So it's, it's complicated. I mean, first of all, there aren't a, there aren't a, there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of settled court cases out there, um, you know, or sorry, I'm going to say litigated court cases out there in this area. Most of the law, in addition to you know the actual language of the ADA and Section 504 itself, comes from guidance or letters issued um, by the by Office of Civil Rights or OCR in this area to particular schools um, about what those particular schools have done. So I think that. Um, schools may see more gray area um, in the law, and I'm just speculating, I don't obviously know, um, than advocates who, who work in this area. Involuntary leave, again, there shouldn't be treatment-related restrictions put on the student's return um, and things of that nature, but it's a little bit trickier because if a student has properly been put on involuntary leave, um, there was some sort of safety issue, usually in the mental health context, that prompted that leave. Can you can you tell me a little bit about you know whether or not you believe that students really know what they're getting into when they take a voluntary leave, a medical leave for mental health reasons? Because um, uh, the student I spoke to was a freshman when they took a, a leave of mental health, and uh, it, it they didn't really understand what they were getting into until it was too late. So, like you said, you know, often students reach out when it is too late, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, try to, I guess, um, uh, articulate what it is you think students should know um, before uh, going into something like that of their own volition. I think what's really important is that students advocate for themselves and realize that if they go into this, that they have the right to be treated fairly and without discrimination. So, once again, that means that... Um, the student should know that the school should not be able to place any treatment-related restrictions on the student's ability to return to campus. 
So what I really drive that is a student going on voluntary leave should know in advance what the school says it's going to require of them in coming back from that leave. And to the extent that it's something that the student isn't comfortable with or that the student feels the school shouldn't be able to ask, um, that's something to get negotiated and figure out before the student goes on leave. Because once the student goes on leave and has agreed to these sorts of conditions, it can be you know, harder to come back um, without fulfilling them. The next thing I want to ask is, you know, outside of issues of, um, you know, safety issues, quote unquote, self-harm, suicidal ideation, et cetera, really um, serious mental mental illness issues that can lead to hospitalization or involuntary mental health leave, there are an even, you know, greater pool of students who suffer from various mental health issues, some of them stemming actually from college life and the stresses of of, uh, being a student at an elite university especially. Um, or any university for that matter, and getting academic accommodations for these mental health issues can actually be very difficult. Um, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it can be really helpful for students. But I wanted to let uh, I wanted to, to ask you if you could speak on this as a as a national issue as well. Just um, why shouldn't students be afraid to ask for help in meeting the expectations of their institutions when they find that their mental health condition is uh, making them struggle to do so? Well, quite frankly, um, and a lot of the intakes and students that we deal with, I understand why students are afraid to ask for that help. Many schools lack comprehensive policies for responding to students with mental health issues, or they do so in discriminatory or punitive ways. Uh, As you say, like by requiring a student to leave school, or you see cases where students get evicted from college or university housing. And all these sorts of measures discourage students from seeking help. They isolate students from social and professional supports, um, like friends or counselors or teachers, right when that student is in a time of crisis, which really increases the risk of harm. And so to make students less afraid to ask for help, um, schools who are actually concerned about the mental health of their students should promote policies that encourage students to seek help if they need it. At, at bottom, this policy and policies that schools who want students to be able to be unafraid to ask for help, um, you know, should place particular emphasis in their policies on how to deal fairly and importantly, and I think this goes to a lot of what you're saying, non-punitively um, with right. students who are in crisis or who need reasonable accommodations, um, and how to support students whose mental health problems may otherwise be interfering with academic or extracurricular or social lives. and. The end of, at the end of the day, a lot of schools don't have policies that do that right now. And, you know, I see this in uh, intakes we get from across the country, and it's uh, Ivy League schools and it's community colleges. Um, and it's, you know, religious and non-religious schools, uh, undergraduate and graduate programs. Uh, it really does exist in all of these different places, This uh, these policies that can make students less likely to ask for help. And I think it's really important for schools who say that they care about, uh, you know, their students' mental health disabilities to make it really easy for students to get the help they need um, without fearing that they're going to be, uh, you know, immediately put on voluntary leave because they, you know, went and sought help. Uh, one example of this I have had from a re- uh, several intakes are, and I kind of alluded to it before, but there's the there's students who end up hospitalized, uh, sometimes self-hospitalized because the student thought that they needed help and so they checked themselves into the hospital. And a lot of schools respond to that hospitalization for that student by trying to put the student on involuntary leave, which is really troubling and, um, you know, really can and cut that student off from the exact resources that they need um, in their mental health crisis. And I think that there's a lot of work that schools have 
uh, to do in, in trying to help students in a way that won't be punitive, that will still address the school's uh, safety concerns uh, and things of that nature, but do so in a way that will be non-discriminatory and supportive of students. Uh, certainly, I've spoken to students who have gone to their uh, college counseling centers and said, listen, uh, you know, I didn't do anything, but I was thinking about hurting myself only to, you know, find that the Dean of Students Office has been told and that campus police is being sent to take them to the hospital. And that's really scary, and that makes that student feel like, well, okay, I can't go there to seek help the next time. Uh, and I think that's really problematic um, because I think that a student who is in a mental health crisis, I think it's in everybody's interest, in the student's interest, the community's interest, the school's interest, if the student feels uh, secure in going and asking for the help they need without the sort of uh, almost a fear of retribution that something bad is going to happen for them for seeking that help. If schools are serious about um, the mental health issues that their students are facing and are serious about helping their students, there's a lot that schools can do um, beyond just sort of the, the rhetoric of saying that they care to make college university campuses a real safe space for students with mental health disabilities. Maura, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, your insight's been very much appreciated, uh, and I will be posting the link to the Frequently Asked Questions sheet as well as to the Bazelon Center's website for any students that feel like they might want to reach out uh, for help, advice, um, anything like that. Maura, thanks again so much. Great. Thank you for having me. That's it for part one of this episode of A Blight on the Hill. Next time, we'll continue our exploration of this topic with a discussion about how mental health leave policies at universities like Tufts are a result of broader structural issues and the prioritization of procedure and profit over community building and student needs. We'll also hear from Olivia Carl, a former Tufts student who spoke to us about her decision to take three personal leaves while here in order to avoid the disempowering and dehumanizing process of taking mental health leave and applying for readmission. Thanks to Chris Paulino and Maura Klugman for speaking with us, and to Stana for her research. Also, big shout out to Avi Block for producing our theme music. We know it slaps, and that's what's kept you listening. Stay tuned for part two, coming soon. Until then, I'm Hannah Kahn. And I'm Liam Knox. Thanks for listening. And take care of yourselves.